Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Are you full of it? Well, I remember my parents saying this when they'd see a kid acting out or acting funny or even acting bold. They'd say, he's full of it. And I always wondered, full of what? You see a kid who maybe was kind of reserved, get up on the stage, and then all of a sudden this personality comes out, and you say he's full of it. Full of what? The book of Acts is about people who are full of it. People who are acting out. People who are acting funny. People who are acting bold. People who are full of it. We call this book of the Bible the Acts of the Apostles, but it'd be more properly titled the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is the one who is acting up, who is filling this fisherman with little education, with little talent for public speaking, with, we can imagine, not much prestige in his looks or his manners, is filling him with the ability to preach the wonderful works of God. He's full of it. And so the Holy Spirit is poured out, filling these people up to the point that some are saying they're filled with new wine, which is ironic because it was the first writing of Luke where Jesus said, new wine goes into new wineskins. But they're not filled with the new wine that's making them drunk. They're filled with the new wine of the Spirit. They're not drunk, as you suppose, but they are acting up, and they are acting out, and they are acting bold. What does it mean that they are full of the Holy Spirit? Now, not even Pentecostal or charismatic Christians agree on these questions of the Holy Spirit and his gifts and how much we can expect of a Pentecostal experience, what they mean, how each Christian should go through that experience. In fact, when it happens, the people watching are amazed and they're perplexed, trying to figure out what does this mean? That's the question they ask. So our sermon today is going to be about what this means. And it's like a chain effect from one thing to the next thing to the next thing. What you want to do is see how it all fits together. A lot of times we chop up this text on Pentecost. We get a little piece here, a little piece there. But in our reading today, we wanted to be sure you got the whole chapter to see it all from beginning to end, how it fits together. And then you can see what it really means to be filled with the Holy Spirit because you see where the Spirit is leading the whole story. So you have these blanks to fill in in your bulletin if you want to. And we'll work through filling in the blanks. What does this mean beginning with the Spirit? Spirit-filled 
works. So this begins with spirit-filled works. There are many different thoughts about the significance and the purpose of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Are the gifts still available, speaking in tongues, prophesying? Are these things still necessary? Should we expect them? And which gifts should we expect and which gifts should we not expect? You have to do an examination of the whole New Testament to really get after these questions. I'm not here to answer them all. I'm not here to tell you whether speaking in tongues, if somebody said that that happened to them, would really happen to them. I'm not even interested in that debate because there's more fundamental things happening on Pentecost. The spirit-filled works are only the beginning. The events of Pentecost were part of a gospel narrative. It was prophesied by Joel that God would pour out his spirit. And so what we see happening is that all of these disciples are gathered in Jerusalem for the festival of Pentecost. They call it Pentecost because it's 50 days after Passover. It's a Jewish festival. It was a time when they would gather in the first harvest of grain to bring it to the Lord, the first fruits of their harvest. Peter and others are gathered because the Lord is now, in a bigger way, going to gather in his first fruits of Christ's Passover. The works are undeniable. Something has happened here that is completely from God, and undeniable. A great breath of wind blows in the building, shaking the foundations. There are tongues of fire that have come and divided and distributed themselves on the heads of the disciples so that they begin speaking in the spirit, prophesying with this flame that is a symbol of God's presence, not just in the temple anymore, but now in each believer. And they're rehearsing the wonderful works of the Lord. As the crowds are gathering to see what's going on, these crowds of Jews who have come for Pentecost, they've come from all over the world and they want to see what this means. Now they ask, what does it mean? And they're confused, it says, not because they couldn't understand what they were saying, that was the first confusion which happened at Babel. Now they're confused because they can understand what they're saying. Because the language is their own. They're speaking to them in their native tongues. What does this mean? Now that's a very Lutheran question, right? What does this mean? Without what follows, if the story ended there, we would be left with a church that was very much in flame and excited about the Holy Spirit, but had no idea what the significance is or how it is supposed to go from there. They'd just be stuck in Jerusalem, praising the Lord, probably, but not understanding. So Peter has to stand up, which is why spirit-filled works leads to have to be interpreted by spirit-filled words. The second point there. The spirit world, uh, spirit-filled words. The spirit world has its own power. 
And not all power is good. Just because there is something spiritual going on does not mean that we should automatically think it's good. Not all powers in the spirit realm are good. Some are evil. Some are used for bad reasons. Not even miracles can prove that the spirits are good. What matters is its interpretation. What matters is its testing. What matters is the words. From the beginning of time, God has always been dealing with his people through words. Words from God. Words that make sense of an event that God is part of. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul makes this quite clear. In fact, he has to just hammer it home that whether they're speaking in tongues or there's prophesying, or there's revelations happening in the church, which there were happening in the church. Whatever those things are happening, they have to be interpreted. They can never be, there, there can never be a lone ranger charismatic prophet that is just going to invent his own church. Instead, words are going to help us understand, which is why Paul says, The words of the prophets are tested by the prophets, which means that as these prophets come, as the speaking in tongues happens, it's always to be confirmed by the scriptures that have gone before it. It's always to be confirmed by the word and the patterns of the Lord's working that have already been established so that some new teaching is not taking us off track. So Peter answers in words, and those words include three quotes from the Old Testament. Now, we could have a whole Bible class or a series of Bible classes on these Old Testament quotes and their significance, how they fit into the narrative. Peter quotes the Old Testament, he tells the works of Jesus, and then he gets to the main point. But since we're just looking at an overview of the whole thing, I want to get to the main point, is that the words that Peter speaks culminate in a message. Because words are not exactly the same as a message. Words give us a message. A message is what God wants to say to you. It's the central thing that God wanted to communicate to this first group of Jews who are going to carry his word and his spirit out to all the nations under heaven. It's the message. What is the message? What is the spirit-filled message that is central to Peter's preaching? Now, you could go back and read it again, and I would suggest you read it several times. To see it's all building up to one central point. He references Psalm 110, says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David wrote that psalm. But David did not ascend into the heavens, and none of us have. Only one has ascended into the heavens to sit down at God's right hand. And is going to make your enemies your footstool. 
Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ, the one you crucified. Are you full of it? This is the central message. If you were to ask Peter this question, when you get to heaven, and you say, what was the most important thing that you ever said on Pentecost? What was the one thing you wanted them to take away? This would be it. Jesus is Lord and King. He's the Lord of all the nations, and he is the King of Israel. He's the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament was saying and preparing concerning this king who would come. His death was planned, even though it was tragic, and even though we bear full responsibility, God knew it was going to happen, and he raised him from the dead, and his resurrection is proving his kingship. He's ascended, he's at the right hand, and he is Lord and King. Peter's message is simple. He doesn't tell the people You need to give more offerings. He doesn't tell the people, you need to follow these 10 steps to honor God with a better life. He doesn't tell the people, you must be born again and come to the altar. He doesn't tell the people, let's get excited and praise God. In fact, the opposite happens. The people don't get excited. They don't praise God. What do they do? So it culminates in a spirit-filled message which cuts to spirit-filling. You know what this is? What does it cut them to? Where does it get them? Nicholas. The The heart. Thank you. It cuts them to the heart. Why? So the heart would open up. When it opens up, guess what's going to fill it? It cuts them to the heart. The results are not kumbaya. They are not Jesus is beautiful. They are not speaking in tongues or miracles. Rather, they are scared. (laughs) The spirit is frightening at first. When the Spirit fills you, he says, Jesus is your Lord now. Now, why is that scary to us? Why is it scary to us that the Spirit would say, Jesus is your Lord now? Because guess who no longer gets to be Lord? Me. And the Spirit is going to search us. It's going to search out the deep parts of us, the parts that we don't want to talk about, the parts of us that we want to keep hidden. It could be the parts of us that are greedy for a paycheck, that are collecting shiny objects, that are indulging in pornography, that are caught up in bitterness, that are filled with revenge for someone who hurt you It could also do with our own rebellion, our own hurting, our own ego, 
our own false views of what's important in life, our false views of who we are, of what it means to be right, of how I will be happy, of how I can make others think I'm better than I really am. All these dark corners are suddenly being exposed by the light of Jesus Christ. Because you're not dealing with Peter anymore. You're not dealing with Pastor anymore. You're dealing with God. And God can cut where no human being can go, right to the heart. He goes to the place where the battle is taking place between love and hate, between faith and rebellion, between hope and idolatry. And he says that those things which once held you captive no longer do. And those things that you've held on to, trying to keep what's hurting you, you can let go of. And he fills you with something new. But what he fills you with isn't just between you and God. It's between you and everyone else here. Which is why those spirit-filled hearts are always guided back to spirit-filled words. What was their response once they were cut to the heart? What do they say? They say, what shall we do? <laughs> That's a good, good question. When you're cut to the heart, when God is visiting you, when the Spirit is filling you, when you're feeling exposed in places you don't want to be exposed, the proper question then is, now what do I do? Because we have got to be guided. Guided through this process by the church. And Peter is that figure that God's appointed to speak on his behalf. And he says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. This is the submission where God visits his church through men called into offices like apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. So we would ask more questions and we would be guided by the Holy Spirit to know what to do about all this. And the guidance is to repent, to drown the old self in water again and again, to arise forgiven, cleansed, set free. Jesus lives and you live also. This is the greatest news we could ever receive. And this is the news that builds a spirit-filled community. So second to last is building a spirit-filled community. You see how it doesn't just end here. I think we miss out on the fact that Pentecost is really summarized best in these last verses, 42 through 47. What are the results of the Spirit filling a community? The results are they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. 
This means they're building a new community. They're separating from one thing, but they're not leaving it. They're separating from what they used to be, but they're not leaving the world altogether. They're devoting themselves to something new, the apostles' teaching and fellowship. They still go to the temple. They still go to the synagogue. They still praise God on a regular basis. But what is different now? What does the society around them notice that is special about these people? That is unlike anything that they see in their daily life, in their workplace. And they were breaking bread from house to house and sharing together with anyone who had need. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. It is that house-to-house relationship that is unique about Christians, about a Christian community that's filled with the Spirit, is the connection you have beyond sitting in the pews together in the same building on one day. It's what happens Monday, it's what happens Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. It's the prayers, it's the visits, It's the meals together, like I was at a meal last night and I could see a bunch of Christians and people throwing water balloons at each other. And it was all love. There was a lot of love there. It's the house-to-house relationships and being an isolated Christian just doesn't work. That's when the devil gets in there. That's when the enemy gets his hold on us. So we break it apart by coming together. There's nothing spectacular about it. There's nothing particularly exciting. It's a subtle, steady love of a community that's devoted to the Lord. That's what the world notices. And that's what the world needs to see right now. Because it's this community who lastly do spirit-filled works. So we're back to where we started. And it starts all over again and again and again. Spirit-filled works to words, to the message, to the hearts, to the words, to the community, to more works. Only now notice what the works are. They're distributing to the poor. They're sharing They're letting go of themselves and their belongings. They're praying together. They're eating together. They're praising the Lord together. These works are lasting works of the Holy Spirit. And what began with a spectacular sign from God endures with a steady love of his people. Are you full of it? It might look a little strange at first. It might feel a little strange when you're acting out, when you're acting funny, or when you're acting bold. But let's be full of it together. Amen.